1: This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a GIST newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gistnews. It's Friday, April 12th, 2019 from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. Lots of focus on that HBO show, The Young Pope, the bad guy from Captain Marvel, also the Vicar of Christ on Earth. I get it. Oh no, did I just spoil Captain Marvel? Oh wait, did I just spoil the afterlife? My bad. It's not the young Pope we should worry about, folks. Tis the old Pope. Pope Benedict XVI, former Cardinal Ratzinger, came down from his retirement villa on the hill and let the current church have it. His issue? Sex. Sex and the gays. Here is Pope Benedict's explanation of the priest pedophilia scandal liberalized attitudes in the 1960s. He cites the sexual revolution, which he described as all-out sexual freedom, one which no longer conceded any norms. And coming in for a special disapproval was a film released in Germany, sponsored by the Ministry of Health. The year was 1967. Here is the American trailer for that film,
0: Helga. 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 For the first time brings you the complete intimate love story of a young girl, her man and her child, from the actual moment of conception through the actual birth of their baby. Parents, because of certain revealing scenes, we suggest that you first see Helga.
1: Of Helga... Pope Benedict writes, the matter begins with the state-prescribed and supported introduction of children and youth into the nature of sexuality. In Germany, the then Minister of Health, Ms. Strobel, had a film made in which everything that had previously not been allowed to be shown publicly, including sexual intercourse, was now shown for the purpose of education. Oh, it goes down from there, as Pope Benedict cites, quote, similar effects were achieved by the sex coffer published by the Austrian government, a controversial suitcase of sex education materials used in Austrian schools in the late 80s. Sexual and pornographic movies then became a common occurrence to the point where they were screened at newsreel theaters. The Bonhofskinos. Oh, it wasn't just the Bonhofskinos. It was also the Sexual Kunda Atlas book. Oh, yes, of course. And he says, quote, part of the physiognomy... Of the revolution of 68 was that pedophilia was also diagnosed as allowed and appropriate. And what does he cite as proof for all of this widespread acceptance and, in fact, approval of pedophilia? I'll give you another quote. The mental collapse was also linked to a propensity for violence. That is why sex films were no longer allowed on airplanes, because violence would break out among the small community of passengers. Now, the New York Times described this letter and all of the Pope's thoughts as, quote, deeply theological and esoteric. Oh, yes. So theological. I I forget. Was it Ecclesiastes or Deuteronomy that had the part about in-flight movies? And lo saith the Lord unto Shem, for the price of two pieces of gold ye shall have in-flight headphones, but they shall be of poor sound and you shall have to press them into thine ears just so that the word of Julia Roberts may be heard. And lo, they shall be heard until the captain makes an announcement, possibly about buying an airline branded credit card. And woe be unto them, for the unrighteous doth interrupt Reese, daughter of Witherspoon, right before the good parts. Here's the problem. The problem is we have two popes. That's one pope too many. The church works, to the extent it works, by having this massively powerful figurehead to channel and express the word of God, to occasionally inhabit the chair upon which he is infallible to be the vicar of Christ on earth. But what happens when you have a guy who used to do that job, who was once God's main man but just aged out of it? It didn't have to be this way. If the old pope just stuck with the agreement, maybe waved a few times on Easter— and made sure not to saddle the new guy with his mishigas, which is actual ancient Aramaic, you know, it could have been fine. But no, he has to go off about the skin flick he saw on a movie marquee in Regnisburg one day in 1967. When the old pope forcefully opines like this, he undermines the papacy. The new guy's papacy, his papacy, the entire institution of the papacy. It's crazy when you think about it. Presidents Clinton and Obama weigh in less on President Trump than the last pope weighs in on the current one. I say, quiet down, Benedict, pope down. Your interjection comes at a cost to Catholicism. It's confusing to Catholics who are having a hard enough time without being haunted by the ghost of conclave's past. I mean, you seem less a Holy Spirit and more a wraith. Please, can you just enjoy your retirement at 91 And leave the poping to the young and spry Francis, he is 82, comparatively speaking, the young pope, or more to the point, the actual pope. On today's show, in the spiel, we talk about those fat cat bankers, we take them to task via viral videos, discussions of CEO pay, a story so compelling it's unbelievable. But first, the year was 1994. Ace Ventura was delighting us in theaters as Bill Clinton was riding high on a rebounding economy. On the small screen, Jerry Seinfeld and his gang of crazy friends and neighbors were making us care about nothing. And on the pop charts, well, that, that, my friends, is what occasions our next segment. Chris Malamfy is here to talk about the number one Billboard hits of 1994. And here comes the high steppa himself, Chris Malamphy.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it Real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system. 1994
1: was a big year for Mike Pasca. The Knicks were in the NBA Finals. The Rangers won their first championship in 40 years. I'm probably boring you. A young man by the name of Mike Pesca graduated from college. None of this matters to the hit makers of 1994 because the Billboard charts were a little bit all over the place with a bunch of songs that you definitely remember. I don't know how many you love to this day. Let's check back in with Chris Malamphy. He is the he is the impresario behind the Hit Parade <laughs> podcast. He writes the Why is this song number one? column for slate that is a question i want to ask you with a couple of these hello chris how are you i'm good mike heartbreaking year for the knicks though wasn't it eh, aren't they all i mean it's heartbreaking but they came closer than ever and then john starks decided uh to keep shooting those three yeah he saw the sign from pat riley and didn't let it go let's start there the ace of base or just the ace of base they saw the sign they opened up their eyes they saw the sign yes indeed they did a great song to sing along in a car. This may sound improbable, but Ace
2: of Base had both the number one single and number one album of 1994, with arguably music that could not sound less like the cutting edge of what 1994 was. I happen to like the sign. It's a very chirpy, catchy, charming little pop ditty.
1: Yes. But that it, lyric with so many stars also gets to me. I get a lot of stars. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's got, got a wonderful Swedish pronunciation.
2: Stars. <laughs> but in any case... It's not grunge, it's not gangsta, it's not R&B, it's just straight up Europop and yet somehow it found a lane in 1994. It's also an important record because it's uh, kind of the kickoff of as I recently discussed in an episode of Hit Parade, the wave of Swedish crafted pop that would take over the Hot 100 in the second half of the 1990s. Everything from the Backstreet Boys to Britney Spears and NSYNC, it all kind of started with Asa Bass, a Swedish pop group produced by the the Chiron Studios in Stockholm uh, and somehow globally famous around the
1: world. Let's talk about uh, Boys to Men, who dominated the charts for months. They really did. What's funny about the early
2: to mid-90s is that the so-called boy band was in retrograde, if you will. But boy bands, as we define them via the New Kids on the Block, Backstreet Boys in sync model—the ones that do the precision dancing. However, the vocal boy band, the you know close harmony boy band, of which Boys to Men was the premier example, uh, was doing better than it ever had in 1994. Boys to Men basically come back with what I colloquially call. End of the Road Part Two. Uh, and that would be I'll Make Love To You, their 14 week number one hit, uh, which just commands the charts for the entire fall of 1994. The reason I call it End of the Road Part 2 is because like that 1992 number one hit, which spent 13 weeks at number one, this 14 week at number one, Smash was written...
3: 14
2: 14 weeks. weeks, Written by Babyface of L.A. Reid and Babyface fame. This is peak Babyface. Uh, He uh, would go on to score a number one hit in early 1995 with Madonna called Take a Bow. Uh, He is kind of firing on all cylinders at this point, and I'll Make Love to You uh, was just about as big as a hit
1: got. Yeah, and then on Ben knee had another a couple weeks at number one for boys to men
2: yes I frankly if you ask me which of the two songs I prefer on bended knee which is produced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis uh, is my uh, favorite of these this period of boys to men
1: how are those ballads different from a couple other ballads and by female singers Mariah Carey and Celine Dion uh, Mariah started the year at number one with hero and then Celine Dion the power of love
2: well hero is kind of a quintessential Mariah Carey ballad she co-wrote it uh, it's a a real power vocal for her. It's probably her most inspirational number one hit. Whereas The Power of Love, what a fascinating record. This is a record with multiple lives. It was a number one hit in England back in 1985 for a largely forgotten pop singer named Jennifer Rush. It was actually the number one hit of 1985 in England. That version sure. was not a top 40 hit in America. However, this record, it's like they kept trying with this single until they found the version that worked in America. It was recorded again by the band Air Supply. They actually flipped the genders in that version. So the phrase, I am your lady and you are my man, became you are my lady and I am your man. A couple years after that, Laura Branigan recorded a version. And then about six years after that, finally Celine Dion, uh, the Canadian chanteuse uh, from Montreal, Quebec, finally uh, wraps her voice around the power of love and finally turns it into a number one hit.
1: There was a Brian Adams song that he did with Rod Stewart and Sting for a movie called The Three Musketeers. And I think the point of the song in the movie was both essentially, look, it's not very good, but there are a lot of famous people in it.
2: (laughs) Can I rant about All for Love? (laughs) Yeah. I hate this record. Sure, of
1: course you do. (laughs) And not only
2: do I hate it, I consider it one of the most crass records ever to go to number one. The creators of All for Love all but admitted this. If you read the Billboard book of number one hits, right from the opening paragraph, they're confessing, and by the way, the three creators, the songwriters, are Brian Adams, one of the singers of the song, uh, Michael Kamen, the well-known film composer, uh, and... uh, a very famous producer, Robert John Mutt Lang, who in the 80s produced everybody from ACDC to Def Leppard. So he's, but he went on to marry and produce Shania Twain. So he's kind of a multifarious producer who's worked across genres. These three men basically confessed right off the bat that they were trying to recreate the magic, if you can call it that, of their 1991 number one hit, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. So to amp up the, I guess, excitement for All For Love, they said, let's get together not one, but three vocalists. Let's pick three people who all have the same husky voice. Right, Sting signed on immediately. And at the last possible minute, Rod Stewart was signed on. And, of course, the title of the song, All for Love, is part of what makes it so crass. Uh, The famous line from uh, the original Dumas story of the Three Musketeers is, All for One and One for All. Reportedly, when he heard that line, Mutt, Robert John Mutt Lang, the producer, said, It's pretty good, but I can't see them dropping their knickers for it in Kansas. And so they renamed it All for Love.
1: Well, wow, man in the news and not without controversy, R. Kelly had uh, five weeks of bumping grind, four weeks of bump and grind at number one. Five weeks at number one
2: on the Hot 100, his first number one hit, and wow. 12 weeks at number one on the R&B chart. Folks, uh, we're all talking about R. Kelly right now, rightfully uh, given the surviving R. Kelly docuseries on Lifetime. But lest we forget, the man was an enormous hitmaker in the 90s. It's why people uh, gave him a pass as long as they did. And Bump and Grind uh, was right from the start uh, his, you know, bid for sexed up hit music fame. It was such a big hit that when Billboard did a survey at its centennial in 1994, when the magazine was 100 years old, and they ranked all of the songs that had hit number one on the R&B chart, Bump and Grind actually came in number one. Whoa. Because it had spent a dozen weeks at number one longer than to that So is this just
1: an empirically designed chart, or were they weighing in on the quality of the song? It's, you
2: know, it it was an empirical chart. It was all about data. And frankly, I'm always a little skeptical of these, you know, sweeping charts Billboard does when they try to combine charts from many decades because chart methodologies change. But let's at least acknowledge that bump and grind was an enormous, enormous hit, particularly on the
1: RB side. So uh here comes the hot stepper, or hot stepper is, is how Innie Kamozi, is that how he says it? Yes. And Innie Kamozi uh, he's a Jamaican artist,
3: as
2: you might have gathered. <laughs> yeah. Um and he's also a lyrical gangster. He's a lyrical gangster understand. and a murderer, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um here comes the Hot Stepper is such a fascinating number 1 hit it's it's an improbable hit and it's probably one of the most Jamaican records most dance hall centric records that's ever gone to number 1 on the Hot 100.
0: I'm the lyrical gangster. Excuse me Mr. Officer.
2: What's interesting about Jamaican music and particularly dance hall music and dance hall culture is that it's kind of a predecessor for rap. Dating all the way back to the 60s and 70s, you have these sound systems and rhythms, not rhythms, rhythms, that are shared among multiple DJs, multiple sound systems. And basically, Here Comes the Hot Stepper was sort of uh, a crossover version of that that somehow made it big on charts around the world. But this version interpolated by Eni Camosi actually goes all the way to number one in the Hot 100 in late 94. As for the line Hot Stepper, uh, this is basically uh, self-branding by Eni Camosi. A hot stepper is someone who is on the run from the law, which is why uh, he is, metaphorically speaking, a murderer. Sure. We got to hot-foot it out of here. Exactly.
1: All right. Let's end with, you know, maybe maybe this is my favorite song of the year who doesn't love Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories with uh, the song Stay. Parentheses, I missed you. You say I only hear what I want to You say I talk so all the time So
2: So, there are several improbable and interesting details about Stay, not least the fact that when she recorded it and when it was issued and went all the way to number one, Lisa Loeb did not have a record deal. In fact, someone who is in the Oscar race this very year is almost entirely responsible for Stay, I Missed You becoming a number one hit. It's Glenn
1: Close. No, who is it?
2: Ethan Hawke, who stars in the movie Reality Bites, directed by Ben Stiller, he was friends with Lisa Loeb. Uh... Ethan Hawke, you know, he has a reputation as a New York scenester and artist. He uh, was simultaneously starring in hit movies and acting on the stage. He knew Lisa Lowe because she had provided music for some of his stage productions. Mm-hmm. And when she recorded Stay, I Missed You, after getting into an argument with a boyfriend, uh, it's a very verbose single in which he basically walks through the argument word for word. He heard it and thought, this is amazing. And he passes it to Ben Stiller, who puts it on the soundtrack to *Reality*. Quality bites. And it's basically the only alternative rock hit, if you can call it that, to go to number one in 1994. What's interesting about the hits of 1994 is that the, the two dominant forms of popular music at this time are basically grunge and gangster rap, and neither one is really represented in any of these number one hits. Stay I Missed You by Lisa Loeb is the closest thing we have to an alternative rock hit going to number one. It uh, reaches number one in August of 1994, and it also goes to number seven on the modern rock chart. So it's kind of an interesting crossover record that represented for alternative rock at a time when, you know, Nirvana were on their final album, Kurt Cobain famously dies in 1994, Pearl Jam are commanding the charts, Green Day are on the come up. And yet, really, the only alternative rock number one hit in 1994 is Stay I Missed You, this rather gentle acoustic ballad from Lisa Loeb.
1: So why do we even consider it uh, alternative music? Because of the Reality Bites tie-in and it just feels of that vibe?
2: Yes, because anything that sounded like this in 1994 would be tagged alternative rock, but you're right to ask the question. Frankly, if this song had come out a decade earlier, it might still have been a hit and it simply would have been called pop. Uh, But because of its associations with Reality Bites, because it charted on the modern rock chart, it was considered tangentially alternative rock and hence it managed to cross over where other uh, alternative rock songs did not.
1: So why were there only, I think we've only done 11 songs. Why 52 weeks in a year? Why is it just that, you know, songs like uh, Bump and Grind were such blockbusters or I'll Make Love to You were so undeniable that of course they're going to dominate the charts for weeks on end? What's
2: happened is that we are now about two to three years into the so-called sound scan era where Billboard has converted the charts to more accurate data methodology. Now we know uh, exactly how many copies singles sell every week and we know just how much they're played on the radio. What we learned when the charts got more accurate is that while we like to think that America has a new favorite song every couple of weeks, in reality, once we have a favorite song, it just kind of holds on for mm-hmm. a long time. Uh, moreover, uh, we're now in the middle of the 90s when some songs just aren't being released as singles, a big reason why there aren't more alternative Alternative rock songs topping the charts is that many of those alternative rock songs from the likes of Pearl Jam and Green Day are not being released as retail singles. And as per the rules on the Hot 100 at the time, they were not eligible for the chart.
1: Oh, Uh, so even if the radio was playing them and the chart is derived in part from radio play, if it's not available as a single, we're not going to put it on the charts.
2: Exactly. Now, of course, this seems quaint uh, in our modern era where not only is every album cut on iTunes for sale, but everything streams and basically any song that streams can hit the Hot 100. But at the time, uh, the Hot 100 was literally a singles chart. It was a chart meant to track songs that were available for sale in retail stores. And in 1994, the songs that were commanding that metric were things like I Swear by All for One, I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men, The Sign by Ace of Bass. It's what was available in record stores and legitimately was getting played to death on Top 40 Radio. Do
1: you have a preference? Do you have a preference for, look, The this is a true accounting of the number one songs or... Do you, like me, enjoy a little bit of the dynamism? It's good to have a new number one song for a few reasons, uh, every couple weeks at least.
2: So as a chart fan, I like it when the number one spot turns over. I will say that as the guy who writes, why is this song number one for Slate? I don't mind getting a break every few weeks when we have heavy turnover in the number one spot. I am a very busy man. So uh, turnover is good in moderation. How about that for an answer?
1: It, It is good. Well, Chris Malanfi was here. He was one of the many lot of stars who we checked in with in 1994. Why is this song number one is a column he writes for Slate. And check out his Hit Parade podcast. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO Jamie Dimon joined his fellow bankers before Congress yesterday, and Representative Katie Porter really let him have it. The first-term Orange County member of Congress, literally Elizabeth Warren's former student at Harvard, and an expert in banking, having been appointed by Kamala Harris to oversee California's foreclosure settlements, is exactly at the nexus of banking and democratic politics maybe even presidential politics. And there she was on the House Finance Committee directing her comments to Diamond, who was asked about an employee who worked at a Chase Bank at a salary of $1,650 per hour, but still had the normal life expenses that outstripped her income. We will pick up with the representative's questioning Here she's laying out her constituents' expenses.
3: She has a cricket cell phone, the cheapest cell phone she can get for $40. She's in the red $117 a month. She has after-school child care because the bank is open during normal business hours. That's $450 a month. That takes her down to negative $567 per month. My question for you, Mr. Diamond, is how should she manage this budget shortfall while she's working full-time at your bank?
1: It's a tough question, and I'm not sure how Jamie Diamond was supposed to answer. I'm also not sure that Jamie Dimon is the person to ask. I mean, I guess he could have said, well, she could find a way to get a roommate, maybe split housing costs with a family member, or she could work some overtime or find a second job. I know finding a sitter might be hard uh, in those circumstances. You know, do all the things that not very well-paid people do when they live in very expensive areas. But a more honest answer could be something like, well, exactly what Diamond said. I, I really don't know all the facts, so it's hard for me to weigh in. I don't know that all your numbers are accurate. That number is, a start, is a generally a starter job. She is a starting
3: employee. She has a six-year-old okay, child. This and, is her and, first job. You can get those jobs at a high school, and she
1: may have my job one day. So she she...
3: may, but Mr. Diamond, she doesn't have the ability right now to spend your $31 Holy totally sympathetic. She...
1: Ah, and there's the nub of it. See, Jamie Diamond was paid a lot last year. Thirty-one million dollars. J.P. Morgan Chase had a great year, eight point three billion in profit. He was the highest-paid employee. The lowest-paid employee is they are making sixteen fifty an hour. That's a big gap. Or if you look at it another way, the minimum wage in California is eleven dollars an hour. So. She's making 50% more than the California minimum wage, not because J.P. Morgan Chase is so nice, because she's paid competitively for others who are doing a job like her in the area where the job is to be done. Also, J.P. Morgan Chase is known as a pretty good employer in terms of giving out good pay within their industry and good benefits. You know, part of it is because they want to see themselves that way. Part of it is because they can't afford it. But there are deeper questions here. I get this woman makes not a lot of money, I get Jamie Dimon makes a lot of money. But those two things aren't as interconnected as they may seem. JP Morgan Chase is not like Walmart. They're not a company that makes its profits by squeezing workers for efficiency. The average pay, well forget average because Jamie Dimon really skews it. The median pay at a company, financial company like JP Morgan Chase is really really high. So is the theory that his high pay is correlated to her low pay? Is the theory just basically, hey, he can afford to rip off a couple hundred dollar bills and throw it her way? Uh, I guess he could. He could probably pay her $30.5 million and still live quite comfortably. It's not how economics works. Management doesn't pay labor as much as management can afford to pay labor. They pay what they have to pay to get the job done. If they're like J.P. Morgan, they might pay a little bit of a premium because they want to promote their brand and their self-conception that they're responsible employers. What if Jamie Dimon was like the CEOs of Google, or better yet, John Mackey, who pays himself a dollar for running Whole Foods? I mean, this is before they sold it to Amazon. He still makes the dollar. He doesn't need to have a high income because he has all that stock. Well, People who work at Whole Foods, I looked it up in the area, they, the salary for assistant grocer is $14.50. So that person would make less than the person Katie Porter talking about, but it would be okay because the CEO is making a dollar. How about this? Let's talk another California example. Steph Curry, Golden State Warriors, makes $34 million. The guy selling sodas at the Oracle Arena makes probably $11 an hour. So what? Okay, Steph Curry's an employee, too. You want to compare the soda guy to the owner of the Warriors? Sure, yeah. Joe Lacob is enormously wealthy. The soda guy still makes $11 an hour. Is it Lacob's wealth that causes that wage to be so low? I mean, I guess you can argue, yeah, in a general or Marxist sense. But really, I mean, the real answer that Jamie Dimon could have given or the policies that Katie Porter does pursue is something like, People that make an enormous amount of money should be taxed at a fairly high rate so that people who make a very small amount of money can live. But guess who decides on the tax rates? It's people like the congressman, not people like Jamie Dimon. Katie Porter is rightly a huge critic of the tax cuts that passed. Jamie Dimon was a huge beneficiary of those tax cuts that he advocated for. But he's also for a type of universal basic income. And even if he weren't, his wealth does not correlate to the levels of pay at the lowest rung of his company. So after the exchange between Porter and Diamond, which went viral, Porter tweeted a screenshot of her holding up a dry erase board showing her math. Like Tim Russert on election night. So, you know, dry erase board. Authenticity. And there at the top line was bank workers yearly salary, 35000 and then it said, after taxes, $29,100. Well, what entity was responsible for that $6,000 in tax payments? Jamie Diamond? No, he was the one who was responsible for paying her $35,000. The entity that collected the $6,000 was Ms. Porter's entity, the federal government. I'm for taxes. I'm not against taxes. But the making ends meet equation needs to be concentrated there to some extent. Or the $450 a month for after-school care. The government can provide that. Or the $1,600 in rent. That is the market rate, but there's very little affordable housing in Orange County. Orange County, by the way, is an enormously expensive housing market. Her $35,000 salary would be a living wage for a single person in Orange County or for a family with one child if there were another adult making $1,650 an hour in that house. I think it's a shame, but it's not a shock that single moms with high school educations who live in one of the most expensive housing markets in the country are going to struggle. It shouldn't be this way. It is this way. It doesn't really have a lot to do with Jamie Dimon's take-home pay. I mean, I guess you could argue his pay was so high because profits were so high and profits were so high because of the tax code, which was overly business-friendly. I agree with that. But that, Congresswoman... That's more of a your people problem than a his people problem. Two more things on this. One, I think Jamie Dimon might be worth $31 million. Like, you're not going to want to hear this. I don't want to admit it. But in the sense that he likely returns a lot more than $30 million a year in value to his company and He's worth $30 million more than the replacement level CEO. It'd probably have to be, you know, 27, something like that, million more than the replacement level CEO. You got to pay that guy a couple million dollars to run, I don't know, what, what, what's, what's J P Morgan Chase? It's nearly a top 10 company in terms of market capitalization. You know, $30 million is one hundredth of 1% of J P Morgan Chase's worth. There's good indication that he's worth $30 million, and it's this. Five years ago, he announced he had throat cancer. It's not like J.P. Morgan Chase stock cratered, but it went down. It went down a little more than 50 cents. Yeah, that was still a loss of well over a billion dollars. That's the economic calculation, how we make it as a society, as a government, as capitalism. And unfortunately... That worker in Irvine is getting paid sixteen fifty. If you jack her salary up to $25, $30, it starts being a worse return on investment than just installing another ATM. There is one other thing. Remember I said two things? There is one other thing. I think I should tell you this. That woman who works at JPMorgan Chase in Irvine, she doesn't exist. Katie Porter made her up, which is weird because Jamie Dimon clearly thinks that she was real. So did I. I bet you did too. If you heard that clip or saw it the first time going viral, here is Jamie Dimon seeming to want to help this woman. You
3: have a lot I'd of... love to
1: call up and have a conversation about her financial affairs and see if we can be helpful.
3: See if you can find a way for her to live on less than the minimum that I've described. Just be helpful. Well, I appreciate your desire to be helpful, but what I'd like you to do is provide a way for families to make ends meet. So the little kids who are six years old living in a one bedroom apartment with their mother aren't going hungry at night because they're $567 short.
1: That is kind, but it also could be seen as cynical and good PR, like when the undercover boss drops in like an angel and helps out one or two employees. It's not really scalable. But I do have to say, when I was watching this thing, before I knew that the constituent was made up, I thought Katie Porter got the better of Diamond. It wasn't exactly fair, but you have to feel sorry for the little girl and the hardworking mom and the $567 shortfall, except... There is no little girl. There is no mom. Because when CNN asked Katie Porter, can we speak to this constituent? The representative admitted, oh, there's no constituent. It was a plausible composite based on real figures. What? I pictured the girl's Dora the Explorer pillow and maybe a Paw Patrol bedsheet and that the mom wore sensible flats and wished she had someone there to rub her feet at night after a hard day. And the mom and the daughter go to Applebee's on Fridays, but they get there early for the two-for-one specials. I mean, Katie Porter literally said she drives a 2008 minivan, and I could see the juice box stains on the seats. I know the numbers could have happened, that's Katie Porter's point, but she was acting like they did happen. And when Diamond said pretty sincerely, I'd like to help her, he thought that she was real. Again, I'm just flummoxed by the tactics and the long-term strategy. What are we supposed to say? Point made? The video goes viral. The never critical of progressives. Now this news, you know, gets thousands of hits. I, I, I failed to see the margin in drawing in all of our eyes only to undercut your argument with the revelation that it's based on fiction. I guess it could have been real. But picture the average person who watched that video and is told that is true and then is told, oh, the woman is made up and the minivan's made up and the apartment's made up. I'm not talking about the person who's already in on Team Katie Porter and is retweeting this feverishly on the internet. I'm talking about the average person gets sucked in, is told, nah, composite character. Do you think that person feels burned? I might. Do you think they feel lied to? I might. Do you think they feel less sympathetic to the issue than if it had been presented factually? I might. When a witness testifies before Congress, they raise their hand, they take an oath. The members of Congress don't do that. Maybe they should. This is a tough issue, living wages and making ends meet. This is this the best argument? Is this the best we could do, an exaggeration or piece of fiction, bludgeoning an unsympathetic figure who's not central to the problem you're talking about? I actually lost a lot of respect for Katie Porter, who had always impressed me as a sharp problem solver. And just as troubling is the fact that the exact action that caused me to lose respect for her might be the one that gained her the most attention and approval that she has ever had. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader, who wonder if Benedict really wants Francis to hit back, and eventually they'll both employ a strategy of Pope on Pope rope-a-dope. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She is Sting to Pierre's Rod Stewart and Daniel's Brian Adams. I think, I think that's right. The gist. We're not so much a lyrical gangsta as a recitative, unindicted co conspirator. Umperu, deperu, duperu, murderer. And thanks for listening.